The songs in which we have joined our voices together have truly been magnificent. Think about some of the words we just sung, a common love one for the other. Or worthy of praise is Christ our Redeemer. As you think about the wording and the expressions that you and I have voiced and did so with confidence and assurance, the singing alone has already been a wonderful way to begin our worship service and to continue it. And now we have for the next few moments the opportunity to open a section, a portion of the Word of God, and we'll discuss tonight a topic I've entitled, Prayer to Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 and following, we noticed a moment ago a reading, and we will look at that one as well as a number of others. But let's begin our lesson in the following way, if I might. We each realize as Christians that one of the grandest and one of the greatest and one of the most powerful avenues that has been given to us is what we call prayer. In James 5, 16, we are basically commanded, Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now, that's a very definitive statement. The prayer of a righteous person is effective in its working. Now, as you give thought to that great statement, notice what immediately follows it. As Christians, we would all readily agree that we are urged in the Word of God to be people of prayer, to individually be oft given to the avenue of prayer. I would call to your attention passages such as Philippians 4, 6, Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Or that passage in Hebrews 4, 16, would you listen with me to the urgency and the boldness that is found in a passage like that one? Let us come bold into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. One of the most certain things in the matter of the life of a Christian is the fact we can rely on prayer. Falling back on that reality and understanding that one far greater and more powerful than we is hearing the assertions of those prayers and the thanksgivings expressed in it. May I also say, we as Christians are not only urged to pray, we're commanded to. Pray without ceasing. Did you notice the definitive and careful statement of the commandment given? To that we might add Colossians 4 too. You and I should appreciate that. Our tongues ought to often be related to the matter of prayer as we, in fact, pray earnestly and fervently. All of these things that I've introduced so far, none of it has been surprising. None of it has been shocking in any way. And yet the bottom question is this one. To whom should we pray? We're told that we're commanded to pray and that prayer is powerful. To whom should we pray? Now, I know every one of us will be quick to say, well, clearly the answer is God. But there's a bit of a question surrounding that because you and I understand that there are three members of the Godhead. There's God the Father, and there's God the Son, and there's God the Spirit. Should our prayers be directed exclusively to one? Are we permitted or at least given approval in the Word of God to offer prayer to any other than the Father? I've entitled this slide one of perspective. I do so for the following reasons. It's my attempt to at least set before you some of the matters that led to the questions surrounding why I selected this lesson. As you and I begin at the top, 
There are those individuals in our world, powerful and rather aggressive individuals, members, if you please, of the body of Christ, who make a very strong assertion. They assert that prayer must be directed only to the Father. That it not only is inappropriate to pray either to the Spirit or the Son, it's actually sinful to do it. Now please listen carefully. These individuals are rather vocal in their assertion. One must pray only to the Father and no other being. You may notice that there are those along that same line who assert that in fact you even must broaden your understanding of prayer. You in fact are not even permitted to praise directly Jesus or the Spirit of the One. In other words, both prayer and praise, according to these individuals, must be directed only to the Father and no one else. And as you come further on the slide, you'll notice near the bottom of it that there are others who very powerfully assert, using passages from the Word of God, that it is entirely permissible to, in fact, directly address the Son in prayer. Now, you'll notice that approach is rather different than the one at the top. I wonder which one is right. Does the Word of God say? Tonight we're going to look at no less than eight passages. So I hope you have your Bible ready. As we look at these one by one, our goal, our motive, our desire is going to simply allow the text to speak and see if we can draw the conclusions that the Holy Spirit set before us. As we close that slide, our goal is then to follow the banner of Romans 4 verse 3. What saith the Scripture? It's not our wish to simply allow a man or a group of men to dictate how we feel about any Bible subject. What does the Bible say? Tonight as we look at them, let's begin in Acts chapter 1. As we turn to that location, verse number 24 will be the principal thrust, but let's put it in its context if we might. We remember that Jesus had selected twelve apostles, and one of them, however, that one we call Judas Iscariot, Judas had, of course, taken his life, as recorded in the opening verses of Matthew 27. A few weeks later, on the scene of this passage, there was a point of selection in which a replacement for Judas was to be found. You may notice in verse number 23, "...and they appointed two. Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. There were two individuals, one Matthias and the other Barsabas, and these two, out of that grouping of two, one was to be selected. How did those early disciples determine which of the two would in fact be selected as the replacement for Judas? Verse number 24 reads like this, And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord which knowest the hearts of all men. Show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. You'll notice the approach that these early first century brethren took with these two candidates selected. They proceeded to approach in the avenue of prayer, and they said, Thou, Lord, knowest, verse number 24, the hearts of all men, and which of these two would be appropriately chosen as the replacement for Judas. Now you'll notice in verse number 24 it says, Thou, Lord. They called upon the Lord in the avenue of this prayer. Who is the Lord? 
You may notice on that slide, I would ask you to look in its context back to verse 21. In that very same place it says, Wherefore of these men which have companied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, unto that same day that He was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of His resurrection. At least in that placement, the following observation was made. Jesus first selected these apostles, and therefore it was His selection in Luke chapter 6 that made determination of the original twelve. Doesn't it seem reasonable then that the same Lord, the same individual, the same being, would make the selection of the replacement for Judas? <clears throat> Again in verse 21... The Lord had reference to Jesus. If that be the case, then in verse 24, these first disciples, these early disciples, uttered a prayer directed to the God the Son. Now, keeping that in mind, you'll notice that the last observation, the last idea to be noted in verse number or that opening one, was that here appears to be a circumstance in which a prayer being appropriately uttered by those initial apostles was to God the Son. Hold that in mind as we look at another one. The second one takes us a little later in the same book of Acts. Chapter 7, verses 59 and following. The scene here again is a very overwhelming one. We remember that as that persecution arose so vehemently in the early days of the church, there was a circumstance in which Stephen himself had preached with such power and majesty he had set before the audience on that occasion the truth of the Old Testament record and the prophets and the matters that had been drawn from them. There came a time in verses 51 and following of Acts chapter 7 when the audience didn't like much what Stephen had to say. So much so that verse 54 says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. Ultimately, they picked up rocks and killed him. Here was a man who told them the truth. Here was a man who asserted to them the nature of Old Testament prophecy and its fulfillment in the life and times of Jesus Christ. Those who listened had very little interest, careful soul, in heeding anything that was said. They chose to kill the messenger. Verse 59 says, As Stephen was nearly breathing his last... And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said the, this, he fell asleep. You and I probably in the imagination of our heart can easily picture this. Here was a man and there were folks throwing rocks at him. And they were intent to kill him in the dead. And yet, some of the last words he spoke were these, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now, you and I might notice, was that a prayer? Was this an occasion where a faithful saint was directly addressing Jesus? Well, sure it was. There's no other way to read this. And yet, you and I appreciate that verse number 60 goes on to say this, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. One more time, reference is made to the Lord. Stephen was directly talking to the Lord. 
clearly you and I remember there was a time in the Lord's own life when there were those who had crucified Him. And He too had said in Luke 23 verse 34, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You'll notice that Jesus had a strong word of, shall we say, mercy to be granted to them and an opportunity for forgiveness. Stephen, following that particular attribute, seemingly did the very same thing here. This appears to directly be a case in which there was a direct address made to God the Son. Let's hold both those in mind as we look at a third one. What else might we conclude from the following text? It was the text read earlier as Andrew did that in the, les- in the service earlier tonight. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, please be turning to that location with me. 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. Throughout the 2 Corinthian epistle, Paul found himself on occasion defending his apostleship. And by that I mean this, there were those who urged that he was not what he claimed to be, that he really wasn't in the place of an apostle, and what right did he have to give any instruction or commandments to the church? Paul again defended his apostleship. I did see the Lord, and I spoke to Him on the road to Damascus. And He bequeathed to me the unsearchable riches of Christ. In fact, in this very chapter, he would even say, I was taken up to the third heaven. And those things I saw, I haven't been able to share, however. It is when we come to verse number 7. Reference is made to that thorn in the flesh. He said, lest I should be exalted above measure. Through the, re- through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Now would you note with me verse 8. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. Paul, what did you do? I prayed to the Lord that this might be removed. I prayed to the Lord that this thorn in the flesh might be taken away. Who is this Lord to whom you prayed? Let's read on. He said to me, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Isn't it interesting that here Paul directly asserted that too in a matter of distress, in a matter of difficulty in life, as he faced that thorn in the flesh, he prayed. He said he besought the Lord, and in the context, he uses the Christ twice in reference to the beneficiary of what was to occur in light of that prayer. Is this in an instance in which God the Son was directly addressed, in which Paul besought Him for the removal of that thorn in the flesh? The comments I would ask you to note on that slide again highlight that much like that case concerning Stephen, Stephen addressed the Lord Jesus directly. It seems Paul did the same. What about the fourth one? At the bottom of this slide, might we turn to the Thessalonian letters for just a moment? These particular references are a little bit more numerous in case, but it seems like they are rather direct enough and brief enough 
that we should have opportunity to at least look at each one of them. In 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 11, we find the following statement from the pen of Paul. Paul directly said, Now God Himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men even as we do toward you. May I ask you to notice the distinction that occurred in the observation of Paul. As verse 11 began, he made note, Now God Himself and the Father, He first makes reference to the Father distinctly different from the Son. Because then he goes on to say, And our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a statement in which Paul had prayed unto both these beings, to the Father as well as to the Son. And as he prayed, in light of that, his prayer was this, that they might direct the Thessalonian congregation on their way. Does that sound like then in prayer, Paul had directly addressed the Son distinctly from the Father? The language would certainly seem to demand it. But that isn't the only one. Turn over to the Second Thessalonians 2 with me, and let's note verses 16 and 17. Second Thessalonians 2, the last two verses of that chapter. Now our Lord Jesus Christ Himself, and God, even our Father, which hath loved us, and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts, and establish you in every good word and work. Question. As Paul made these heartfelt pleas unto God on behalf of the Thessalonian church, to whom did he direct these assertions? Verse 16 mentioned the Lord Jesus Christ on the one hand, but then God the Father distinctly different from it. Did Paul then address those two members of the Godhead and do so rather carefully and explicitly on behalf of the church in Thessalonica? beseeching them to bless that church with comfort, to bless that church with establishment in every good word and work. That's the statement of the text, isn't it? It again would seemingly be the case that Paul felt it very appropriate to understand that it's entirely right to pray to God the Father, but it also is not impermissible to even make an address directly to God the Son. As you and I close that particular slide, could I invite you to note a bit of the grammar? On the slide, I wrote it like this. In both of those passages, both the 1 Thessalonians one as well as the 2 Thessalonians one, the subjects are such that they are plural. There is the God the Father and the Son, and thus, joined by and, that makes a plurality. But it's a fascinating thing that the verb in both cases is singular. As you hold that in mind, here again, two beings to whom the prayer was addressed, but the benefit of it was asserted as singular. That highlights again that this prayer apparently was such that as Paul addressed each one, the benefit therefrom was singular from both. Let's look at number five. What else might we say about some additional passages in the New Testament? In the very last book in the Bible, would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 5 for just a moment? Revelation chapter 5. 
As you and I know so well, the book of Revelation is a rather stunning book. All the Bible books are so wonderful and remarkable. And yet when we come to Revelation, it's filled with such imagery. It's filled with that which can be imagined on the screen of our consideration. And we can literally see what John saw. And yet as we arrive at chapter 5, the scene is a rather telling one. You may recall that there was a seven-sealed book in the right hand of the great God of heaven. Now that's God the Father. And John began to cry and almost to weep in such a way because no one in heaven or earth was found worthy to take that book to loose the seals and to reveal the contents. But yet one rather calmly said, John, don't cry. For the Lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed, and he's worthy to take the book and to loose the seals and to reveal the contents. John, don't cry. The Lamb is worthy. And as you hold that in mind, who is the Lamb? You and I know verse 12 will say, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and blessing. The Lamb is Jesus Christ, the one who was slain and the one who, of course, had been resurrected. The reason that enters into our discussion tonight is in verses 8 and 9, the following words are found. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, every one having harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us. To God, by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Question. Those odors that were described as ascending up to heaven, in verse number 8, what are they? The text says they're the prayers of the saints. Now, who were those prayers, those odors, if you please, like sweet-smelling incense, who were they coming to? Who was it that was receiving them? Well, that text, of course, brings us to appreciate the one that had just been proclaimed as worthy was God the Son. The one that had just been proclaimed as being specifically able and worthy to take the seals and loose them and to receive the glory and honor and riches and power from men was none other than God the Son. Now, holding your finger there, look over to chapter 14 in the same book. Revelation 14. Beginning in verse 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him an hundred and forty and four thousand, having his father's name and the name, I'm sorry, his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder, and I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. 
And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying, With a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters." Now, you and I know that God the Son is the one that made the heaven and earth and the seas and the waters. Colossians 1, verses 15 to 17 tells us that. Doesn't John 1 remind us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Maybe in fairness, then, we see in these two sister passages that the one who was highly acclaimed and glorified and apparently the one to whom those ascending prayers were coming was that one appreciated as the mediator, Jesus Christ. Maybe in light of that, it brings us to appreciate passage number 6. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, would you? In 1 Timothy chapter 1, we'll look at verse 12 in just a moment. I'd like to begin reading in verse 11. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, for that He counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus." Here Paul makes a reflection on his own life. He recalls that time when he himself persecuted the church, when he himself officiated or at least assisted in the stoning of Christians and in the imprisonment of them. And yet Paul says, verse 12, I thank somebody. Who did he thank? The text says, Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul directed thanksgiving expressly and explicitly to God the Son in light of the fact that He's put me into the ministry. Although I was a persecutor, although I was injurious, although I was one who in fact sought to wreak havoc in the church, God bestowed mercy on me and it was God the Son specifically to whom He directed that thanks. Isn't it interesting then that as you and I notice at the bottom of that slide, here was a gospel preacher, Paul, and he expressly was thankful to the Son that that Son had washed his sins away and put him in position to be a declarer of those great messages known as the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's an amazing consideration, isn't it? As you and I close that slide, we've looked at six passages, all of which have at least had us an opportunity to give consideration to the one to whom prayers might be addressed. Two more. One of them perhaps is one you've already expected us to discuss at some point, and so we shall. But let's do a different one first. In the opening chapter of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, may I invite you to consider the opening two verses of that book. The church in Corinth has been our place of study now for quite some time on, on Wednesday evening. We have thought about that congregation. We have cast a spotlight upon her. We have reflected on the circumstances in which she was and the abuses that she rather sadly had begun to, to pursue. 
But yet the opening stanza of this little book reads like this. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes our brother unto the church of God which is at Corinth to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord both theirs and ours. What a magnificent statement. You may have noticed as we reached near the end of verse number 2, Paul specifically said, "...unto the church of God, which is at Corinth." First mention was made, here were brethren in Corinth. Paul was thankful for them, but let's go on and notice. These were called to be sanctified in Christ Jesus. We know it's only through Jesus that they were justified and only by their obedience to the gospel that they occupied that storied place of being saved. But he goes on to say this, "...to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, these were called to be saints. But you'll notice, with all that in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours." It would seem that Paul made note not only of the brethren in Corinth, but also those in other places as they called upon the Christ." expressive of the thoughts in their heart, thankful that He was in fact their Lord. And as they expressed those wordings and those thanks to Him, the Holy Spirit was rather clear in saying, "...with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours." There is but one Lord, isn't there? That statement of Ephesians 4 verse 5, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and sure enough, here He is identified as Jesus Christ. As we've looked at these seven expressions so far, we have been intending to at least gain an appreciation of whether it's permissible to direct prayer to the Son. The eighth passage is probably the one that you first anticipated us to discuss. Let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount and let's revisit what our Savior declared and what Jesus Himself said in that very storied and memorable place. You may recall that it was on that occasion that Jesus said, After this manner therefore pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now that little passage, that model prayer as we sometimes refer to it, it only has 69 words in it. As brief as it is and yet as encompassing as it is. Might we all keep in mind, though, that that is not the ultimate and final template for all that is permissible in relation to prayer. You'll notice some things in that prayer are easy to understand. Thanking God for our daily food and expressing to God the heartfelt understanding of hallowing His name. You also notice a petition in it as it relates to our desire that the will of God be done here as completely and thoroughly as it is in heaven. And there's also a statement about the desire that forgiveness be extended. But you may quickly notice there are many other things that are not in that prayer. Do you find in that prayer 
a prayer for the sick, a prayer for kings and civil authorities? Do you find in that prayer a statement of praying for those who've lost loved ones? Do you find in that a prayer particularly and directly expressive of things about troublous issues you and I might face? Well, none of it's there. point is, you and I always wish to take everything that God's book says on any subject and put it all together. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we have authority to pray for kings. In James 5, verses 14 and following, authority to pray for the sick. You see, we don't anticipate every single thing that is to be said about prayer should be found in one verse. How did Jesus begin this prayer? Our Father which art in heaven. It's true that as Jesus was making these statements, we notice He did direct the prayer to the Father. Now, should we be surprised at that? Wouldn't it seem a bit strange if Jesus included Himself on that occasion? to encourage them to pray to the very one who was speaking to them. That would be awkward to say the very least. You'll notice that we do find in this, this statement, Jesus did encourage an understanding that's entirely appropriate and right to pray to the Father. And the Lord, of course, is the mediator who carries those prayers to Him. But it does lead us to ask about the following. We do know Jesus was divine. He is God. More than once, He received worship from individuals on earth and He never corrected the person. John 9 verse 38 is but one example. You may recall, He specifically told the woman at the well in John 4, I am the Messiah. The one that speaks unto thee is He. Jesus was that Messiah. What well, then might we say in summary to some of the matters we've studied tonight? What about the object of prayer? I've attempted to summarize some of what we've learned this way. Without doubt, we find in the life of Paul, the life of Jesus, the life of others, it's entirely right to offer prayer to God the Father and to understand then that that prayer is such that we have biblical precedent for it. Our question tonight has been slightly different. Is it permissible to offer prayer to God the Son? We've looked at seven passages beginning in Acts 1.24 and proceeding through each of those that we looked at in turn. And we found evidence, we found biblical statement and precedent on several occasions that was rather direct that the first century Christians such as Paul and such as others directly called on the Lord and they addressed God the Son. Would you and I then have the permission to do that today? It would seem so. It would appear to be consistent with the Word of God. As you and I come to the close of that sermon, we understand the power of prayer continues to be mighty. And it continues to be great. And may we not forget that even the Spirit has a vital role to play. In Romans 8.26, those groanings which are hard to be uttered, it's the Spirit that deciphers them and carries them to the Father. As we close this lesson tonight, I hope we've each been encouraged in our prayer life to think about that which Jesus did at Calvary for each of us. That blood that He shed was for you and me. It wouldn't be inappropriate to express thanks to Him for that. 
It wouldn't be inappropriate to thank Him for the church that that blood purchased. And so as we offer prayers unto God, let us appreciate that the Word of God and all these passages, and yea, some additional ones as well, help us appreciate just how grand the Godhead is. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 speaks about the Godhead, and aren't we thankful for all three members and the work that they do? Tonight, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Have you been cleansed from sin? If you have, you know what a blessing that was, and you understand how your life was transformed, and you understand the benefits that have come your way because of it. If you've never obeyed that gospel, why not let tonight be the night? But if you have, and you have known what the power of prayer is, and you've understood how often your life has been blessed with it, maybe this lesson has cast some additional spotlight on the beauty of prayer, the power of it, and the capabilities and permissions the Word of God grants us in relation to it. We're going to stand in just a moment and sing a hymn of encouragement. If there's anyone in the audience of whom we could be helpful as we direct prayer to, to the God of heaven, for forgiveness of your sins, for strength, or for encouragement, we'd be delighted to do that. At this point, let us simply say that invitation and the gospel that is behind it is extended by virtue of the example of heaven. And at this point, if you would wish to come, we would invite you to do that while together we stand and while we sing.